Well, hello again, guys and gals. This is Christian Massar again with another episode of Historical Thoughts and Interpretations. This is the second podcast episode, and um, actually today is is kind of a repeat of a uh, of a YouTube video I did for the old uh, na- the old version of the blog called His- History Vice Video Blog. Um, but uh, so I'm just redoing. Uh, that video, but in an audio format only. So today, I want to talk about ideas. And specifically, right now, in this episode, I want to talk about the power of an idea. Uh, Ideas have a lot of power, of course, and actually, in the next episode, I want to talk about why ideas, why ideas work. Um, Why some may fail, some may work in certain circumstances, and may fail in other circumstances. So, I, a few years ago, when I was first coming up with this, when I was first doing the YouTube version of this podcast, um, I came across a quote on uh, the Goodreads.com website by George Weigel, and I quote, Ideas are not intellectuals' toys. Ideas have consequences, for good and for ill, in what even intellectuals sometimes call the real world. And uh, I think that's a very good, um, a very good quote. You know, intellectuals and, and anybody really can have an idea, but you know, maybe just a fleeting thought, and maybe there won't be much more than that. But ideas can really have consequences. For example, in November 1917, we see the idea of communism. It you know after they deposed the Russian provisional government, the idea of communism started to spread, of course, throughout the old Russian Empire. Turn, turn the empire over on its head. You know, this deeply religious society uh, that influenced politics and everything like that starts being replaced by communist atheism. And over the following decades, communism really established itself in, in Eurasia. And, and in, its, in its name, whole societies were changed to accommodate you know, collective industries you know, over the next following decades, of course. And, you know, unfortunately, this caused a lot of problems a lot of you know the implementation of farming collectivization for example caused caused starvation in in a lot of areas a lot of problems and anybody who tried to resist were punished of course and but you know on the opposite side of the spectrum countries supporting capitalism were also willing to fight wars to prevent communism from spreading you know after world war ii we have the cold war of course and and so you have a system in which a world system in which the world is defined by communism and versus capitalism and yeah of course you had a third world which tried to you know go their own way but uh, that's a whole nother whole nother topic and you know almost the last the almost the entire latter half of the 1900s was tense with this um, you know this dichotomy between communism and capitalism and uh, so we see that ideas are in in and intellectual thoughts are, are very powerful. And throughout the rest of this uh, podcast, I'm going to give another uh, example of this. Uh, for for lack of uh, an example of this, <laughs> well, idea. And I just used the example of communism but uh, in, in Russia, but uh, the next example also takes place in Russia, but it takes place centuries before the Communist Revolution of November 1917. Uh, so we'll go back to 988, where what, of course, became modern Belarus and Ukraine and Russia, uh, Kievan Rus, was converted from uh, from paganism to 
Orthodox Christianity by uh, Saint Vladimir the Great. And but but and of course Orthodoxy became the main religion of of what became Muscovy and Russia, the Russian Empire, and so on. And but in the in the mid nineteen six mid sixteen hundreds, the religious landscape in Russia was changing. Uh, in 1654, Russia had absorbed the Ukrainian Hefenet, so therefore there was increased Russian contact with the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And so th this caused an issue where then Russian, uh, the Russian Church was changing as well because the faithful wanted more education for the priests so they could preach more effectively. And so the Russian Orthodox Church started following Ukrainian and Greek religious models. And the Russian patriarch, Nikon, uh, he started to change the Russian practices to follow those those Ukrainian and Greek uh, modes of doing things religiously. The core teachings remained the same, but changes were made in quote-unquote minor areas, but we'll find out they weren't actually so minor. Uh, for example, the way the sign of the cross was done would be done differently. In the past, the Russians had used two fingers to represent the dual nature of Christ, you know, his, his divine and human natures. But now, after the reforms, Russians had to cross themselves with three fingers. So this represented the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The spelling of the word Jesus, of Jesus' name, was also changed. And so one may think that these changes were minor, but while on the outside it may appear so, in Orthodox Christianity, everyday rituals essentially recreate holy events. So at, at this time, crossing oneself was not a mere symbol or gesture. Paul Buskovich uh, suggests that such actions were believed to literally, quote, recreate the sacrifice of Christ rather than merely reminding one of it. This fits with the sacramental belief system of orthodoxy and Catholicism. A sacrament is not nearly a reflection or a religious symbol. Under, these, under a sacramental religious system, for example, the Eucharist or communion, it literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. So, while in non-sacramental Protestant traditions, it's quite different. Communion is often seen as simply a non-literal remembrance, like a, like a symbol but it's in a commanded ritual, but nonetheless, it's a symbol. The bread does not literally become Jesus' body, and the fruit of the vine does not literally become Jesus' blood in, mo in, in Protestant systems. It, it's kind of like a 12-gun salute on Remembrance or Memorial, Memorial Day. But in an Orthodox or a Catholic sacramental system, that literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. So it's a lot, you know, if anything is changed in that, this making the sign of the cross, this was seen as, you know, very serious. So, of course, with that little aside and a little bit of an explanation, these religious reforms caused quite a stir in Russia. In essence, Patriarch Nikon's reforms were Hellenizing the Russian church. The Greek cross was going to be used, Greek songs would be sung, and clergy would wear Greek-style vestments. And Nikon was criticized for these changes, which some saw as unnecessary and arbitrary. Uh, we must also understand that to Russians at this time, and <laughs> to a very big extent nowadays too, orthodoxy was a very large part of sort of a, a national identity. Russia was uh, also seen as a, a quote-unquote third Rome, the defender of the one true Orthodox Christian faith. The, the third Rome refers to the idea that Rome had fallen into apostasy going, into, going towards Catholicism, 
And then later on with the fall of Constantinople and also their, apo- their apostasy to Western Christian ideas, they were seen as a second Rome. So Rome was the first Rome. Constantinople was the second Rome. And so now with, with Russia, Russia was the third Rome. And the belief was that there would never be a fourth. And so if the third Rome fell, then the world would end. That This was the idea. And Greek Orthodoxy, from which Nikon's reforms came, some saw as, as Greek Orthodoxy also falling away from the truth. Thus, the third Rome of Russia was the last stronghold of pure Christian truth. And so changing practices would be spiritual suicide. And so to deal with these criticisms, Nikon and the Russian Tsar Alexei had the religious critics, including a high-ranked priest named Abakum, exiled to Siberia. And Nikon's Greek reforms were passed by a church council in 1666. So this made any resistance towards the, against these reforms a legal offense as well as a spiritual one. But resistance still persisted. Abakum and his comrades came to be known as what were no, came to be known as old believers. Uh, most uh, most of the old believers were peasants and parish priests. But uh, in addition to violating new church rituals, they also did not serve in the military or pay taxes. And of course, because the the government and Nikon were together in enforcing Nikon's reforms, soldiers were sent to force the old believers to heal. And the old believers did not did not fight back. Fearing that the world was coming to an end, many of them even crowded themselves into buildings and set themselves on fire. So this this was a final <laughs> screw you to the re- new religious establishment, which had failed to persuade the the dissidents. And in 1681, Avakum was burned at the stake. So here, the idea behind Nikon's reforms was that the current Russian religion was imperfect. In pushing towards reform, the stage was set for strife, even even if that was not the original intention of it, of the reforms. The old believers had the idea, on the other hand, that the old Russian ways were indeed perfect, with ideas of a third Rome and and that, uh, you know, if we change things, the world is going to end, you know, what's wrong with the old ways? We should keep them. And many were even willing to kill themselves for this belief. And the Russian Orthodox Church is not alone in having such a troubled history. If we look at the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, we see how it polarized Europe later on and eventually led to religious conflict in later on in that century, but also certainly during the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648. And we see in some non-Catholic circles, there, there's been debate on whether or not church buildings should have a kitchen in them. So, <laughs> uh, personally, I have not seen people get killed over these beliefs, but uh, we can see how these, the, the example of the old believers, uh, we can see how seemingly small, small uh, reforms and everything like that and adjustments to ideas can can really have a lot of effect. And of course, in Islam, there's the battle with violent radicals, such as Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, and so on. So we can tell, we can see, as George Weigel said, ideas have great consequences. They're often not just idle beliefs. They influence people's religion, votes, and everyday lives, and, and they make people act in certain ways. One could argue that ideas are perhaps more powerful than the guns they sometimes command on the battlefield. Thus, people should be responsible with their ideas.
<laughs> I'm kind of moralizing here, but uh, but it's true. People should be responsible with their ideas. Or at least, if there's disagreement, and there always will be, ideas should be discussed and debated. And, of course, force should only be used against an idea if it causes great evil. 